Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I am so excited to bring this one to you today because I've, I've literally been like nervous and giddy all day today. And, and I get nervous and giddy before interviews sometimes, but this one was a little bit different for whatever reason, because I'm bringing to you an interview with the GOAT, Hicks and Gracie. Okay, so this guy doesn't need a whole lot of intro, but for any of you guys who don't know who this guy is, he is a ninth degree red belt in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. He's the son of the godfather of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Elio Gracie, and he's considered to be the greatest Gracie fighter ever. So he's the Gracie family champion. That's why we named the episode what we did today. But this guy is a bona fide pioneer in the sport of jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts. And so obviously I talk about jiu-jitsu all the time. I've been training myself for about four years and then mixed martial arts is one of my favorite sports and I've been watching it since I was a little kid. But this guy was right there when all this was being formed with the family that basically made mixed martial arts a thing. Okay, so this guy was an undefeated Valley Tudo fighter. That was kind of what MMA was before MMA was even around. But he just released a, a new book called Breathe, A Life in Flow. It's hit the New York Times bestseller list. So we were able to speak a lot about the stuff he talked about in the book. Now, the thing about this interview is we didn't have a whole lot of time. And I told him off air, I said, look, I just want you to be able to flow. I want you to, you know, no pun intended with the name of the book, but I want you to be able to go in whatever direction you want to go in. Okay, so if I ask you a question about this, you can answer that and flow into another story and go here or there. But guys, we did get into the reason why the Gracie clan decided to go with Hoist as the family representative in the first UFC, as opposed to Hickson, who at the time was the family champion. So we got right into that. I was really, really excited about his answer to that. But also there was a really interesting story about a guy that from Japan that came over and stormed his gym. And then there's this big famous fight and, you know, kind of what he's going to do with that video, because that video has been legendary because no one's seen it unless you have Gracie as your last name. But that video is going to be released here soon. One thing I will tell you is to not listen to this one sped up. I know I'm always begging you guys like listen at one and a half times speed or, or two times speed or whatever. But with this one, he's a very deliberate talker. You know, Portuguese is his first language and English is his second. The audio isn't perfect. Again, we, we just kind of had to go with whatever we did here. You know, we didn't have any video for this particular interview. Again, all we wanted to do is make sure to bring this guy's wisdom and his stories to you. And so we would do that in the best way possible. But again, it's not perfect audio. It's not going to be, you know, perfectly clean and all that. And there's a lot of stuff we left out. I, again, that's why I got to tell you guys, go pick up a copy of Breathe because, you know, even on his interviews recently with Joe Rogan and with Jocko Willink, they weren't even able to get into all the detail that was in this book. And it's not a crazy long book. It's like 250 pages or something like that, but so much great detail. But guys, oh, without further ado, let's get into it. Hicks and Gracie, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it, my friend. That's my pleasure. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to talk to you. And like I told you off air just now, I think there's a lot of guys right now that are very, very excited that uh, we're getting to speak with you. Uh, but one of the cool things about your life is you've gotten a lot of accolades. You've won a lot of trophies. You won a lot of awards. But now you can add New York Times bestselling author to the yeah. list of accolades that you've gotten in your life because uh, you just released a book in August called Breathe, A Life in Flow. So I guess from your perspective, Hickson, you know, why write a memoir and why do that at this point in your life? Uh, it was a great opportunity for me to, to make some extra money during the pandemics. So I get an offer, which I could not refuse. And then the idea of having a book has been in my mind for a while because I have a good friend who is always 
explained to me how good it would be to talk about my life. So this guy is Peter Maguire who helped me to write the book. So uh, it's an it's a old-time project who comes alive with the pandemics, and I'm very happy to expose myself this way. Well, I would say it was it was a fun read for me, especially since I felt like I knew a lot about your life already. Uh, but there were so many details that I feel like I didn't didn't know, and I really enjoyed you, how you went into detail in the book. And one of the things that I really enjoyed very from the very beginning was how Gracie Jiu Jitsu came into being. Okay. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of details to go into, so I'll kind of let you go into it, but obviously it was brought to Brazil by your family and then it kind of expanded from there. But can you give us an idea about how Gracie Jiu Jitsu came into being? Yes. Uh, in the beginning of the century, Kondi Maeda Koma, which was Jiu Jitsu champion and was touring around the world, displaying his effectiveness. He ended up in Brazil. And he loved the country and he started to thinking about settle down in Brazil and become uh, a manager of the immigration process, of the Japanese immigration process for the, for the north of Brazil. And uh, my grandfather was a scholar and, and good businessman at the time. They become friends. And as a gratitude, Conde Coma uh, asked ask my grandfather to, to bring his kids for him to teach some self-defense and some jiu-jitsu. And then my uncle Carlos, which is the oldest of five brothers, started to learn with Conde Com about jiu-jitsu. And after five years of practice, he decided to relocate to Rio de Janeiro. So in 1925, the first jiu-jitsu academy in Brazil was made. And uh, since then, we've been involved with the martial arts practice and protocols and culture. And uh, it was a great mix because Brazilians are very, uh, very, uh, very aggressive people. The culture is very much no respect. Show me what you got. You have to prove all the time. So the, 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 the jiu-jitsu practitioners has to deal with lack of respect and, and controversies and fights. So we become uh, very much comfortable in express our martial arts against other martial arts to prove we are the best, more effective martial arts. So these confrontations brought to Jiu-Jitsu an evolutionary process which goes towards the M what MMA is today. With lack of not that much rules, you can strike, you can fight on the ground, you can do whatever. So the family is being involved with that kind of style for since I know, since I remember myself. And when I born, I born as a Gracie member, part of a clan. It was very exciting. It was very much uh, a different culture for us as a fighters, as a Gracie members. So I born and raised in an environment where, you know. I want to be a champion, I want to be a fighter, I want to represent the family, I want to just take everything I can do to be the best representative I could be. And in that, in that like, way, I've been exposed to much pressure, to a lot of, of discomfortable situations, a lot of insecure state of mind, and, and, and you have to deal with in a very, a very open way because 
you were about to fight somebody who has no time limits, no way divisions, no rules. So being able to to be comfortable in this kind of unpredictable aspect, make anyone involved, commit to grow not only physically and the practice of the sport, but also mentally to control emotions and stresses, and also spiritually to know how to surrender and, and, and be able to to give yourself fully up to, you know, up to death, if is the case. So when you prepare yourself to be in a gracie, you face a lot of demons, a lot of stresses, a lot of challenges. And in a very much improvising way, I could deal with my stresses and my situations, which I talk about in the book, which was just to grow and to get a better approach to be comfortable in hell. So that's pretty much my, my, my what I had to do all my life. And in this process, I felt like I grew a lot, not only physically and technically, but also mentally, emotionally, and also spiritually. So Jiu-Jitsu being a, a, a journey where I evolved as a man, and uh, even though I'm not perfect, even though I make a lot of mistakes during my life, I use those mistakes to grow and to become uh, the, the, the most perfect expression of what the, the, the jiu-jitsu culture can bring as a beneficial aspect for the practitioner. Yeah, that's great. I feel like that gives us a, a lot of stuff to work off of here because, you know, you talked about how you came from a fighting family and in the book, you talk about how, you know, Gracie's aren't big people, you know, big physical Viking type people. And this was kind of an art made for a smaller, perhaps weaker person to be able to take advantage of and control a larger person. But you mentioned there wanting to become, you know, the greatest Gracie, you know, the Gracie family champion. And, you know, in the book, you talk about how your brother Holes was a great athlete, but, you know, was stubborn and a bit unmanageable. Um, but at a certain point you realize that you had the physical and mental attributes to become the greatest of the Gracie clan. And, and you detail in the book, I loved how you discussed this about when you were at the Brown belt level and then you rolled with holes and you beat him. And I specifically want to read a couple of quotes from your book here that I found especially uh, important. And one's this, what I remember most about that fight was the sadness I felt afterwards as though I had made a mistake by beating him. A huge but invisible weight of responsibility had shifted from Hull's shoulders to mine. In my heart, I knew that I was now a better fighter, but worse, so did he. It wasn't luck or a fluke. Holes just couldn't surprise me anymore. I also realized that I would never have to beat him again to prove it. And then later on, uh, I know we're skipping a lot here, but that's why you have to go get the book because the book has all these great details. But you talked about you know, how you found out that Holes had been killed in an accident and you were on the phone. And he said you received the news over the phone and it took you only a few seconds to know that my life would never be the same. Not only had I lost my idol, a teacher and my favorite brother, but I was now the official family champion. Now I would have to answer all the challenges and lead the next generation of Gracie fighters. I was now the last in line of defense for the Gracie family. So explain this to, to someone like me who doesn't have kind of that great family name. I've never had to, you know, defend the the Thompson family honor. Explain that to, to us and explain that to our listeners, what that was like when you realized that you had become the Gracie family champion. Yes. I mean, we all compete, we all train hard, we all practice basically daily basis with some teach. But, uh, you know, at one point we have a ranking. So all the time in my life, even when I was a kid, I saw my older brothers training, my cousins, 
to establish who is the best one among us. And he's always a champion. Before it was Carson and then Holmes. And then I was seeking my brother's footsteps uh, to become like him or even better than him in a very natural and humble way. It was never, I never tried to take Holmes from his seat, but I tried to be the best supporter I can be to him. Because the, 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 the number one representative of the family has the is compromised to represent the family, regardless who is going to fight you with, the size of the guy, the rules and the mat. So it's very unpredictable and it's very, uh, I don't say crazy, but it's very much uh, something you can you expect anything. You have to be completely, fully committed and accepting anything because you're not there to quit, you're there to fight. And expect somebody to throw the towel in case you get hurt, because you're not there to quit or to win. So it's a very, very heavy pressure. And based on that pressure, uh, I embrace my practice, and I always have balls ahead of me. When he passed away, I felt like immediately I'm the guy to be called in case something gets wrong or some some kind of weird guy try to fight. Whatever happened, I'm the number one in the front line. So that's given me a completely different responsibility and commitment in my, 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 my journey. And based on that, uh, the increase of the pressure, the increase of the stress, the increase of the, the tension make me rely on different sources of, of, of uh, to cope with that situation, to give me better sense of comfort, secure state of mind, and, 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 and acceptance. So my growth has to be completely balanced between my practice physical, my emotional, and mental, to make strategies, to make uh, visualizations and such, and also in the spiritual level, which I can add patience, add hope, add faith, add surrendering, to able to handle everything. So the process of growing is, is based on the stress you're facing. And I was dealing with a lot of stress in daily basis, and I had to be comfortable in that kind of situation. So I, I start to find myself solutions for my own problems and, and start to grow from that and, and feel very much happy with the outcome of my practice. Well, I think that's very important because, you know, you had your first professional fight at the age of 19 and you're fighting this huge guy, 230 pound monster named King Zulu. And you talk about in your book, you know, how, you know, fear is not an enemy, but it's a self-protection mechanism and you have to be able to manage that and change it. Uh, but that really kind of led through until the late eighties. I know we're kind of skipping ahead here cause we don't have all the time in the world, but you know, it's all there in the book guys. But in the late eighties, a lot of Gracie's including yourself moved to America. You began to make names for yourselves, especially considering, you know, the underground popularity of the Gracie in action videos that were circulating all over the country and which are legendary now. Uh, but the Gracie name and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu really exploded on the scene in November of 1993 at the Ultimate Fighting Championship 1, the UFC 1. And here's the thing, you're the family champion at this point. 
but you were not chosen to represent the family in the first UFC tournament. Your younger brother Hoist was, and, and at the time, Hoist had zero Valley Tudo fights. And maybe you can give us a little bit of an idea of the difference between Valley Tudo and then, you know, modern MMA. But he had zero major jujitsu titles, but he was chosen anyway. And there's been a lot of rumors. I know you've talked about it before, but what was what was the real reason why you as the family champion champion did not represent Gracie Jiu-Jitsu at the first UFC and why was Hoist picked? Yes. At this time I come to US in, in 1989. I've been in the US before to help Hardy seminars and stuff. But in 89 I come to move here and live here permanently. And since then I start to work with Hardyon towards increasing the number of students, increasing the defense for seminars and law enforcement uh, practice and helping him and everything I could. And uh, and we work for a while together, but we become incompatible to, to work together because Jorge was a very hard guy to deal with in terms of professional. So we are not exactly 100% best relationship at the time of the UFC. And he felt like keeping Royce as a, as a uh, fighter to represent will be a good deal for two reasons. One, he still had Royce under control. Second, I could represent the family in case Royce was and he lost for any reason. I, I always can combine and, 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 and reinforce our legacy. So he felt comfortable to put Royce because he was keeping me away from the getting absolutely famous or, or grow under his wing because at this point I was not working for him anymore. So he felt like it was be safe for him to keep Royce under his wing and, and, and fighting the UFC. And of course, if Royce lost, he would have the second thing to put me in. But, uh, Everything went well for Royce at the time, and then a couple of years after, I was finding myself fighting in Japan to begin my career in Japan. And since then, I, I did my career in Japan, the UFC role in a different role. Uh, at the beginning of the UFC, the rules are completely open, so it was not exactly a mixed martial arts event yet, because each fighter represents his own style. So jiu-jitsu against wrestlers, against judo players, against boxers, against sumo wrestlers. But nobody has the, the idea yet to combine training, to mix trains like the wrestler. Today, he trains striking, he trains uh, submissions. The jiu-jitsu practitioner, he trains striking, he trains wrestling. The, the striker, he trains jiu-jitsu, he trains... So we are training cross-training now to be capable to handle better on the MMA's fights now. But before, it was just style against style. That's why Jiu-Jitsu was so superior at the time, because Jiu-Jitsu embraces a little bit of everything from the beginning. And boxing is completely on striking. Wrestling is only throwing and controlling the position, but no submissions, no striking. So the, all the other sports has little flaws in terms of in preparation for a, a free engagement. Jiu-Jitsu, and otherwise, has already this kind of comfortable ability to deal and a freestyle, regardless if you use gi, if you're not using gi, if you're punching, if you're using headbutts. 
So it was comfortable for us at the moment, and, and, and a much more, uh, much more comfortable than, than other styles. So in the beginning, Jiu-Jitsu just kick ass and just completely uh, in control of the, 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 the scenario. Now everybody knows Jiu-Jitsu. Now everybody knows wrestling. Now everybody knows boxing. It becomes more like an entertainment sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's much different now. And when you go and watch those early Valley Tudo fights, it's just a very different type of sport. And knowing that the buzzer isn't going to go off at the five-minute mark, is it changes things quite a bit. Uh, but as we look at your career in 1994, you were invited to compete in the Japan Valley Tudo Open, which you won easily. And then you did that again in 1995. And that was kind of the subject matter of the very legendary documentary, Choke, which is one of the most legendary, if not the most legendary MMA documentary there is out there. So I, I highly encourage guys to go watch it. But there's a famous kind of happening in your life that happened in between the 94 and the 95 Valley Tudos in Japan. Um, after the 94 Valley Tudo, a famous Japanese pro wrestler named Takata, he challenged you to a fight. Okay, so Ch Takata went to the press and said that you were ducking him and that you wouldn't fight him. And you responded by saying, basically, you don't do fixed fights, which was, you know, a very common thing in Japan at that time. But then Takata's protege, kind of this bad guy named Yoji Anjo, he announced that he was going to come to America and fight you to the death. And I mean, obviously you weren't very worried about that. You didn't really think much of it, but actually on December the 7th of 1994, so this is after the Valley Tudo, especially, you know, it was on the 53rd anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, no less. You got a call when you're at your house that Anjo was at your gym and the referee was there and there was about a dozen Japanese reporters there and they were demanding to see you because Anjo wanted to fight you. So I just wanted to set up the story because I love this story, but go ahead and take it from there. Yes. And, uh, like you said, wrestling in Japan was big, huge. And the Jap for the Japanese fans, the wrestlers, they have the same or even more prestige than the real fighters. If you get an Olympic judo champion, you get the pro wrestler, the most famous pro wrestler, they will pick the pro wrestler in all ways, even to win fights or, or being the most popular. So when I refuse to fight Takada because he makes fixed fights, Immediately, they changed the game and said, okay, if you want to fight, uh, if you don't want to fight Takada, I'm going to go to your, your place in Los Angeles and I'm going to break your face. I'm going to show you I can beat you. And I said to him, okay, if you want to come, you can come anytime because I'm ready to protect myself. I'm just not going to fight in your environment, in your, in your circles because that's not going to give me, I'm not going to add nothing of prestige or reputation in my record. So a couple of months passed and I received the call and uh, I immediately noticed was a relationship between the call and somebody to fight me. I immediately connect the idea of somebody's there to fight me. So I get in my car with my son and uh, start to tape in my hands before I arrive in the, on the freeway. I was already taping my hands because uh, I like to use bare food, bare hands, and, and with the tape, it will give me a little more protection to punch. So when I arrived in my place, it was an old school, and it's, it's like behind the, the alley. Soon I get with my car into the parking lot, I saw a van full of reporters, Japanese reporters. So I keep going through, I walk in, and I saw a couple a very tall Japanese guy, very well dressed, and a lady. So the guy introduced himself as the president of the UFO, 
which is the biggest uh, wrestling association. Oh, Mr. Grace, I'm the president. I come here to see if you can, I, I want to invite you to fight in Japan. I said, yes, uh, I know that. And I told you I'm not going to fight in Japan because you guys fit fights. And then he said, yeah, but you also said you fight for free at your academy. I said, yes, that's what I'm here for. I, I'm expecting you to come as a fighter. I said, no, no, but the fighter is out there, outside. Can I call him? I said, yes, you can call him. As he said, as he sent the lady to call the fire out, out there, I saw my students to keep on the door and don't let the press, because I saw the press. So I said, let the fighter come in, let the lady come in, but keep the press outside the dojo, because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, I don't want them to just report everything. So the Japanese come in, and I immediately sent, give him a waiver to sign, like a, a waiver in case he get hurt. Like that's a very common liability process here in the US. So I give him the waiver and he looked the waiver and start to discuss with the, his friend, president, said, yeah, in Japanese. And then the, the president coming to me and said, Mr. Gracie, you mean if you don't, if you don't sign the paper, you're not gonna fight? Immediately, I saw some kind of malice on the way he said that. And if I say yes, he has to sign. He may want to leave and say any shit he can say. Because I give you the excuse for him to say, okay, I've been there. He's not going to. So I will give him the leverage for him to argue. I was afraid, whatever. So let's say, and then I said, okay, forget the paper. Get the paper from his hand. Throw away. And said, you come here to fight. Let's fight. And then we open a circle on the dojo, and he's already on the middle of the circle, and we start to fight. And I felt by his approach, he was intent to really hurt me with a punch, because his position lead me to understand he wanted to strike me. So I made myself a little dummy and allowed him to punch me. So when he, I, I, when he tried, I deflected, grabbed him, and a very good grip and throw him on the floor and mount immediately on top of him and start to hit him. And he turns back. In a normal situation, when the opponent turns back, I go immediately for the choke and put him to sleep. But was not the case because if I choke him unconscious and don't show his hurt, when he wake up, he can say anything he can say, he can say whatever. So I had to keep striking him even when he turned back and force him to turn face me again and start to punch him using my elbows until he, I broke his nose and make his face very damaged and very bleeding. So, and then he turned back again on my back and I choked him again. I mean, not again, but for the first time and put him to sleep finally. And as he's sleeping, I told I told my students to allow the, the reporters come in to the dojo. So the, the Japanese press come in, start taking picture, and the president of the federation tried to protect his face from showing the blood and stuff. And then we tell them to yeah, don't cover his face, show him to the press. So the, the, the press make pictures of him and show what happened. And uh, a couple of days later, he went back to my studio. Andrew went back with a, a samurai helmet as a gift from me. 
and told me he was apologizing for the lack of respect. He was completely feeling bad about it, but he has to do it. And uh, he shows respect and he left. A couple of weeks later, a guy from Japan coming to me, my, my agent in Japan, he told Andrew, who started talking bad things about it, he told he got jumped in the academy. He was holding for many and get beat. So because I have my cameras filming the tape of the fight, I was able to send a copy of the VHS to Japan to just show to the press, no copies made, and go returning to me. So the press was witnessing. It's all cool, everything was hand-to-hand, -hand, no, no jumping, no other guys interfere. And that's kind of give my reputation to Japan, like a couple of steps up, and I being recognized as a guy who did everything by the book, and the, the, the Japanese fans even respect me even more after that. And I continue my career after that. Yeah, absolutely. You talked a lot about kind of the Bushido and the samurai culture over there, but you mentioned the video, and I know I'm probably the millionth person to ask you about this, but when are you going to let us see the video, Hickson? Come on now. Like some of us got to be able to see this video at some point. That's who, that's who coming very soon because I'm planning to, to release the video many times soon. Okay. Very good. Well, we will certainly uh, be on the lookout for that. So obviously you mentioned that you had a long career and a, and a good career there in Japan, uh, but you never fought in America. And some people have kind of given you some crap about that, that you never fought the best American fighters at that time. So, you know, the names like Mark Kerr or Mark Coleman or Don Fry or those types of guys. So I, so I kind of have kind of a two-part question here for you. How do you feel like you would have done against those kind of big you know, steroided up, you know, wrestling types, kind of forward pressure types. And then also right now, if you were in your physical prime right now and you were able to fight with current UFC fighters, who would be some guys that you would want to fight with now? So how do you think you would have done against those old school guys that were there at your time? And then right now, how do you think you would do against some of the best in the UFC? Yes. Uh, so first of all, when you're thinking about the, the big wrestlers, I, I was impressed. One time I was in home, and my friend Fabio Bugel, who is a training partner and tough guy to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu representative, he fought Mark Kerr in Brazil in an eight-man tournament. And they, they sent me the tape because we cannot see live. Anything was not like that. So they sent me a VHS to see this eight-man tournament where Fabio Bugel fought the final match with Mark Kerr. And Fabio stays in the guard getting punished by Mike Kerr for the whole fight. And, and uh, he lost the fight. Uh, and, uh, and I saw that, I get very impressed with the size, with the position, with the structure. And for me, it was always something which I, can, I had to deal with the surprise, like I'm the next one in line. So I was immediately, after I saw this fight, I, think I saw myself fighting Mike Kerr in the next few months, if it was the case. So I get, I get really impressed by the, the positions I saw based on his power. So the first thing I did is get my son, my older son, Hodgson, with at the time 12 years old, about maybe one, one ten, hundred pounds, like very light kid, very skinny. I said, Hodgson, please come here on the mat and help me. So I went to the garage on my mats, put him lay down, 
and you start in a very soft way, in a very nice way, finding myself in the same angles Markel was in, in against Fabio Rugel. And based on my angles, my, my size bigger than Hoxon, I start to put Hoxon in comfortable positions. That Hoxon, lift your hip a little more. Try to use your knee here. So to see if he was able to find leverage and angles to, to get comfortable against the angles I saw Markel inflict on, on Fabio. And after base, about after maybe half hour, 50 minutes, I was completely convinced if I use the strategy, I just show Hodgson, I could deal with Marker. And after that day, I felt like comfortable. If I had to fight Marker, I was not sure if I want to win or not, but at least I have a game plan, which is very, is very executable, is very much make a lot of sense for me and give me the sense which I find equalizers for my power against his power, my techniques against his techniques. So I was happy to be able to try, even though I'm not sure, I was confident I could beat the guy. So with this being said, the fight never happened because in Japan, uh, I was very big in Japan. And in Japan, the Japanese don't have the, like to fill up a Tokyo Dome with 70,000 people. I cannot fight some foreigner. So two foreigners in Japan is not going to fill up a, a, a big house. So it's always, I have to always fight a big Japanese famous guy in order to, to make the, the return as a business aspect for the guys, for the businessmen. So I fight whoever they point to me because for me I was a professional. But on the other hand, I was ready to fight any wrestler, any feather. At the time, feather was a very tough guy. Mark Kerr, Mark Coleman, uh, Tom Harrison, uh, and also, I mean, a bunch of those tough guys, which are very tough, but they don't have the, the audience they needed to, be, to make a huge fight in Japan. So, in, in other words, uh, it was never an opportunity for me to make a fight against those tough guys. And... Uh, and back to today's modern MMA, I see so many good guys, you know, so many complete fighters, especially in this kind of short five minutes rounds where they have the gas and the capacity to spin on, on ice. And when they start to get tired, they have the, 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 the round and they can rest a little bit and go back. So three rounds, five minutes, or five rounds, five minutes, is very, very good to be manageable for an athlete, for a tough guy. When you put the fight with no time limits, it's completely different because you need this for a more strategic fight because you cannot just spin wheels and, and burn gas because you're gonna get tired. And then if you're tired, you cannot recoup and you're not in, in, in deep water. So it's, the rules today make difference, make more like entertainment, explosive, violent show, doesn't have the defensive aspect, doesn't have the techniques, the, the, the endurance of the fighters, the capacity to, so it's, it's a completely different game. And I feel like there's uh, so many tough guys out there to, to, to make a good fight. If I was in top shape today, if I was, uh, let's say, ready to go today, 
One thing I don't want is fight on the UFC rules. I will bring the, the, the audience and bring the, the, the situation to, to make them, like I will fight the heavyweight, like uh, let's say, Let's say any good heavyweight, but no time limits, no rules, and, and that will be, I'd be more comfortable. If I have to fight in the UFC rules today, I don't believe I could be a pull it off because there's too many restrictions for what I believe is, is my survival mode, too many restrictions for me be technical, be patient, explore the weakness of my opponents. And, and, and it's too fast, it's too explosive, no time for the guy to get tired, no time for him to make mistakes, so it becomes very confusing. You know? so even in the same weight division today, it's a big problem because if I walk around with 80 kilos, right. I fight in the UFC with 65. So I have a nutrition problem, I have dehydrate myself, I have to put myself very close to death. And then I make the weight, and then I have 24 hours to, to recoup myself. A lot of fighters, they have problems to do that. They go to the hospital. So the rules today, the setups today are made to make a more entertainment than actually a fight. You know? And that's way, I could never ever feel comfortable when fighting the UFC rules. Right. Absolutely. No, that would be, that would be very cool to see you fight like, uh, you know, Cyril Gaon or Francis Ngannou in a no time limit type of fight. I, th I would love to, to see something like that. Obviously uh, that, that could happen in modern day, but I did want to talk to you as well about what you're doing now. And so you're obviously doing seminars. You've been doing seminars for a while, but I want you to talk a little bit about the fact, and you, you spent a lot of time on this in the book about how jujitsu in general has moved more towards sport jujitsu and away from kind of this self-defense jujitsu aspect and how people can just train jujitsu without ever doing a fight, you know, something Valley Tudo or even something in the street or something in the gym. And that's something that you're wanting to change. You're wanting to kind of, you're wanting to kind of get it farther away from sport jujitsu and back to kind of the original Gracie jujitsu style. So I guess, why do you want to do that? And then how are you going about trying to make that change? Yes. I felt like, I learned all my life how to deal with pressure, how to, how to strategize against opponents, and, and, and be in control of my emotions. So that kind of deal for me is transcends being on the mat. It's completely uh, related to life itself. So when I see today uh, the, the sport jiu-jitsu, is really a chance for a very small percentage of the, the community. Because in order for you to engage yourself in a jiu-jitsu school today and start to practice from day one how to pass a guard, and then the guy who's going to defend you, he's trying to sweep you and hurt you or choke you. So the confrontation is not something comfortable. It's not something for everyone. So if you start to deal in jiu-jitsu sport, you have to have the the, the, the competitiveness, you have to have the desire to, to, to fight, you have to have the capacity to be resilient, you have to suffer, you have to feel pain, you have to put eyes, you have to use tape, you have to, you know, to, to do everything which not exactly demands a learning process, but demands you use all you got, and sometimes people get a little short on that. I work in computers, I'm an artist, I'm a 
I'm, an, I'm not an athlete, but I love to learn about Jiu-Jitsu. So in that case, I, I start to realize in my growth process, I not only have to grow technically, I not only have to grow uh, physically, but also I have to grow mentally in terms of strategies and visualizations, but also I have to grow spiritually because you have to feel good about, for example, it's very different between being patient and being passive. When you're passive, you lost opportunities, you let opportunities go. When you're patient, you're waiting right for the perfect moment to act. So like a lion behind the bush waiting for to kill the zebra. He's patiently waiting against the wind until the moment he makes the kill. So patience is a virtue. Hope is a virtue. Faith is a virtue. So as a warrior, I start to grow not only as a fighting warrior, but also as a spiritual warrior because I had to control my, my mind. And today I see and I average for 95% of the community, we all need fight, different kind of fights. Sometimes you fight depression, sometimes you fight anxiety, sometimes you fight COVID, sometimes you fight lack of money, bad relationships. So it's a lot of, it's a lot of situations to depress you, to, to, to demoralize you, to, to diminish you. So, and, and the opponent sometimes is not exactly a physical guy, a black guy who's trying to kill you on the mat. But it's a guy who's just, you know, you receive the opponent through email, you receive a bad message through email, he's depressed, you attack your heart, attack your mind. So that's why I call the, the, my book Breathe, because from breathing process, I learned how to achieve the deepest parts of myself, how to be in control. Because something very interesting about breathing is you have your brain and you have your heart, which are the only organs in your body who give and receive information. So in order for you to be connected deeply with your brain and with your heart, you have to use the lungs. The lungs are the facilitator. By breathing properly, you cannot only feed your heart to be hyperventilated and be able to handle stress longer and run forever and swim forever, go under the waterfall. So you control your emotions through your heart, through your lungs. Also, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. Uh, wherever you feel mentally, you can also be assessing that kind of layer of your brain with your breathing and start to stabilize yourself in a much more comfortable way. So breathing acts to the athlete, to the spiritual, to the mental, to the strategical, any aspect to breathing, you can access yourself in a deeper layer. So I felt after all this process, today, for example, I feel like I cannot train in jiu-jitsu like I used to because I have many injuries. I cannot surf the, the way I like to. So physically, I'm impaired to a level where I can live happy, but I cannot put a lot of stress on my body. But mentally, I never use so much jiu-jitsu than I use today because I can visualize my escapes from problems. I can strategize my life better. I can have a better emotional control. I can have a peaceful heart and mind. I can sleep at will. I can be able to spiritually 
stretch myself to accept that in a comfortable way, to accept, you know, the, the problems which can happen in, in life in a much more approachable and comfortable way. So today, I'm living uh, my jiu-jitsu as never before, but not the physical part. So that's why I felt like is my commitment today to be able to enlighten people in how much jiu-jitsu in a good sense of learning how to breathe, learning your base, learning your leverage, learning your empowerment, without being the confrontation. Because when you put yourself to confront somebody, you, you bring in ego, you bring in disappointment, you bring in frustration, because you never know if you're going to win or lose. And if you win, break, you in a way to become a champion. If you lose, you have to deal with the depression, with the the hurts, whatever, it's not comfortable. So we can skip this part. And if I teach somebody who's weak today or a child, I'm not going to start by learn by teaching him how to compete. I will touch. I will start by teaching him how to breathe, how to feel the invisible power he has, like base, like angles, like levels, like distance, like breathing properly. So he will learn how to feel more confident, even though he's not exposed to a fight itself. Because I will prove him, if he's in the right angle, he can really avoid my path, my push, my punch, my hugging, my grabbing the headlock. So he's going to be comfortably accepting and understanding the mechanics, the leverage, the techniques. And eventually, he starts to breathe properly, he starts to enhance his mindset, and eventually, he's going to feel like the best he can be, regardless if he compete or not, regardless if he's a good fighter or not. Because I feel like Jiu-Jitsu is there to not only enhance the fighter's life, but also to enhance the community's life. Because for me, even in the sense of humanizing people, because today, robotics, technology, internet, dehumanizing put you in front of a computer, put you in front of a cell phone, and from that view, you, you be wherever you want, you talk with whatever you want, you express yourself in the, in the most beautiful way you can express, because you have control of the machine. But when it talks about shaking hands, look people in the eye, ask for a job, get a girlfriend, you need to be present, you need to be human, you have to feel the breath, you have to feel the sweat, so just for the sake of humanizing, putting in contact with your breathing, with your sense of response, your reflexes, just for the sake of humanizing, this is a huge beneficial aspect. So Jiu-Jitsu has so much to give, regardless the competitiveness, regardless the fighting aspect. And I'm now passionate about offering to the, to the major part of the community who otherwise never going to fight Jiu-Jitsu because it can quit in the first week of a regular training, I start to find a road where the community can enjoy this soft aspect of jiu-jitsu and become more present, become more human, become more connected with their own capabilities. And make, make, they may feel weak muscularly, but they feel strong connectively, leverage-wise. So this beneficial aspect, I just start to reinvent just start to bring him back to the community. And start to, through my, through my platform, Dixon Academy, 
start to offer to the public this kind of sensitive aspect of it, because you need to develop your sensorial element. And just by having this developed, you don't have to become a fighter to be a much better champion. All right. I love that answer. I love that you went into all that detail and I know we're running up against time. So I'm going to get you my last question here. So I've been training jujitsu in the gi for about four years. So I'm a blue belt, which means I'm not completely worthless, but I'm not very dangerous, right? You know, I'm just still working my way through. Um, and so what is your advice specifically for someone in my position, someone who's a blue belt that is not just satisfied with blue belt, but wants to continue to develop and move forward. And then what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make when they're training jujitsu for themselves? Yes. First, now I'm scared of you. I know now you're blue belt, so much respect. <laughs> Thank you. So, I feel like jiu-jitsu is there to favor your, your personality, your way to be. So some people, they, they, they are too aggressive naturally. So they will learn from jiu-jitsu how to mellow down, to be more sensitive to the situation. Some other guys are very, very mellow, very passive, very much, uh, almost too passive. So they have to learn how to energize their body and be responsive more according to the answer. Answer the movements with more timely. So jiu-jitsu can improve you regardless of your personality or your character. But the sense where jiu-jitsu has to be a uh, uh, very much, uh, part of your life is when you start to use jiu-jitsu in somehow in a way for you to know yourself. So the first important thing that my advice is, is as you practice, try to breathe accordingly, try to feel comfortable in your breath, not get claustrophobic, not get panic, not get impulsive and explosive to the point you lost control of what you're doing, you just want to do something. So become more humble in terms of if you get caught in uncomfortable positions, don't be shy to be, to give up or to tap out. You don't have to resist. It's not you're not fighting your ego to, to resist to the last to the pain happens. So you want to be sensitive to the problems and start to understand like a chess game when you get a checkmate when you're about to get checked. So when you should move. So become more knowledgeable about your possibilities, your, your resting positions, your positions you have control. Becomes a science where you start to learn about not only you, but the element of your opponent, emotionally, physically. So all this is, you know, is a way for you to, to develop your knowledge about yourself. So you're not there to fight your opponent and have to win all the time. You have to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. You have to be practicing to, to create a better capacity to, to, to play with your brain and play with your, with your body, almost connected at the same time. You, you not think anymore, you become reflex how to survive, how to get, capture a mistake from your opponent. So my recommendation in the final sentence is to be completely relaxed about the pressure, completely humble about the defeats. And you start to be very curious about what you should do next, what's your next movement, what you should do to not fail. And that way, you take your responsibilities from your shoulder 
em tudo que é responsabilidade e jiu-jitsu. Mas jiu-jitsu supõe ter referência para mim. You cannot, you're not able to just come in with dancing yourself. So be relaxed, be comfortable, start to be very curious about details and positions. And eventually you're going to have a purple belt, very soon brown belt, and then you're going to be a black belt for sure. All right. One of these days, I hope I get there before the body breaks down, but Hickson, thank you so much for going into all the detail and all these different areas, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, my brother, I really appreciate your help and uh, about talking about the book. I'm very happy with the situation I'm in right now because I'm motivated to bring a new layer of information to the, the, the community in terms of how to win without a fight. So that's pretty much my, my thank you to you and I appreciate and hope see you on the mat very soon. All right, Hicks and Gracie, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Have a great one. God bless. All right, there you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Hicks and Gracie. We are so grateful that we got to spend a little bit of time with him. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast. It helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to the book, Breathe, A Life and Flow, the New York Times bestseller, and also a link to Hicks and Gracie's website. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook, and you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>